0: Hey, folks, it's the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. We are thrilled today, and I'm not Dr. Ovedia. Anybody who's listened to this show before knows I'm just Jack Heald, the talking hairdo who uh, asks silly questions. We are thrilled to be joined today by Kevin Stock. I think he's only the second dentist we've had. Is that right, Phil? No, no, no. He may be the first.
1: I believe he's the first. Yeah. I don't Great think we had
0: a dentist on yet. So so why have we got a tooth grinder on this show? That doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Well, uh, as we're going to find out through this conversation, you know, uh, the mouth is really um, one of our interaction points with the outside world uh, in terms of what we put in it and um, how we start to process what we put in it. And it turns out that the mouth uh, can not only give us Uh, great insight into our health, but is also a very important part of our health uh, and really excited. And I think Kevin has really been uh, very progressive on this front, recognizing the interplay between our oral health and our overall health. And he's been talking about, um, you know, metabolic health uh, really for a long time now. Um, you know, I, I I know when I first started on this journey, he was one of the ones I came across quite early. So real excited to have him on the show. And, uh, with that, uh, let me introduce Kevin Stock and, uh, Kevin, why don't you give our audience a little bit of your backstory.
2: Sure. Well, thank you for having me on. Excited to chat, uh, to keep the backstory, I guess, short, I mean, dive in down any rabbit holes we want to go down. Uh, But like you said, I've been interested in metabolic health, really fitness for a very long time. I grew up, I was an overweight kid and that's what was the impetus to me getting into the health field. And so I say I was interested in health and fitness since a very early age. It was really, I was interested in fitness early on. And so throughout high school is when uh, actually junior high is when I really dove in, started doing some really dumb nutrition experiments uh but started to figure things out okay (laughs) just give us an example one dumb nutrition experience experiment so i I i'll say it was junior high probably seventh or eighth grade where i guess i would say i was smart enough to realize that like if i ate less and exercised more i could lose weight and so i went on this my this 333 plan where I was basically going to eat 300 calories for breakfast, 300 calories for lunch, 300 calories for dinner, and I was going to run three miles a day. And that is not a recommended nutrition or exercise plan, as you can imagine. Uh, So that's just one of many, many examples.
0: Were you falling asleep in math class?
2: Gosh, I just, I I withered away pretty quickly. And, I can imagine. And oh as you I, can I imagine, yeah. I take you off
0: track, but. No, you as, say, as you can imagine. You say I'm dumb like, experiment, and I'm going to want to know what it is.
2: Well, yeah, and I've done, I've done, it's, uh, I went through many more. I learned many of the lessons the hard way, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> you learn those lessons, though, <laughs> well, right? The ones that you, are learned the
2: hard way. You, you seldom do. forget it's, those. <laughs> it's funny because I, I was at a, Ah, uh, college roommates' wedding this past weekend, and we're of course reminiscing, like on my stupid diet experiments. That you know, it went. They went through high school, they went through college, and I'd say by the time I was in dental school is when I started to like really get a grip on things. But it, it, you know, I spent almost a decade doing some really dumb stuff. So,
0: okay, I'm a marketer, so I think there's going to be a massive market for. A book with a title something along the lines of "Dumb Diet Experiments I Tried." Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a long yeah, list. At least a list, you know.
1: <laughs> dumb experiment done well. I think uh, that might be a yeah, great <laughs> <you go>.
0: topic. <laughs> okay, back to the business at hand.
2: Yeah. So I yeah. The long story short, I did these experiments in college. I would say is when I started, like at least get the feel of things a little bit better. Um, I got a degree in chemistry and minors in biology and also a minor in business. Uh, and I really funneled all the really chemistry I wasn't interested in, but I could funnel through the lens of how can I use this biochem to you know, build muscle and lose fat? And I went to dental school. That's another discussion, like how I decided on that. We could <laughs> we go down that uh, rabbit hole if desired. But in dental school, I really started to figure out the fitness can part. I did a couple of physique competitions, one in dental school, one after dental school, and I really kind of dialed that in. But I had not, while I figured out the fitness code, I was lacking the health and fitness code. And so the health part, that, that, that was the journey that took about another decade after that, where I now could feel I, like I finally have both sides of the equation.
0: Could I ask you, because yeah. because this is really counterintuitive now, and this is a serious question. You were doing physique competition. I assume that means bodybuilding. Yeah. And yet, at least as I understand what you just said, you really weren't healthy. Yeah. So that okay. is would my you, big, would you, would you mind maybe expanding on that a little bit? Cause, cause as a layman, my assumption, although it's, although the, I know that bodybuilders are extreme, but my assumption has always been at least those guys are are pretty damn healthy.
2: Healthy, right? Yeah. Well, that's so, my assumption. I think a lot of the confusion here is because in the United States, 70% of the population is either overweight or obese. So if this 70% of people lose weight, they are likely to get healthier. So that's gonna confound just about all research right there. Uh, but what I have found, personal experience. As well, lots of personal examples, actually, For myself, my family, uh, who doesn't necessarily struggle with weight issues, all kinds of health issues. So my dad's a perfect example. He's recently retired. He is 165 pounds. He golfs basically every day. He works out several times a week. You look at him, you're like, this is a healthy guy. But I, he's had all... Like when you, when we talk about like chronic issues, like he's had them all, he can't eat without taking pills. He recently had a CAC scan, which is really high. He's had the gallbladder taken out. He has kidney stones. He has, he has the whole gamut. (laughs) And so, yes, a lot of people think you just lose weight, you get healthy. But to me, there is a, that's, it's true for a lot of people. They're overweight, they're obese, you lose weight, you get healthier, uh, but just focusing on body composition alone, I feel a short-sighted and there's certain doctors out there that I know they push everything. It's like, Hey, just eat to satiety, you know, eat lots of like satiety per nutrition. There's like the PE diet. I love Dr. Ted Naiman. So I'm just picking on him a little bit, but whenever I hear him talking, he's always just talking body composition, body composition, body composition. I'm like, well, there is another side to this story. Like it's health and fitness.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a great point. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, we've discussed some on the show and, and, you know, I've certainly observed is, you know, there's a difference between being overweight and metabolically unhealthy. And those two do usually go together. uh, But what you need to do to correct that problem is different uh, than, you know, what someone who has always been fit, uh, you know, might do might get away with i often say and so you know to a certain degree um you know being very fit working out you know to high levels maybe some people would say excess levels can maybe start can cover up some of these sins in terms of the diet for a while uh but we oftentimes see that it catches up with people and you know uh there are numerous examples of athletes you know high level athletes And then as they get older and they sort of cut back on their athletic, uh, you know, pursuits, it becomes obvious how unhealthy they are.
2: Yeah, that's the other side of the coin where you can actually, for a time, outwork out a bad diet if you're young enough, active enough. (laughs) And a lot of times that comes back and that that creeps up on you.
1: So uh, let's uh, I I would love to hear a little bit more about, you know, what uh, led you to dental school. And uh, what the attraction
0: was there.
2: Sure. So I I have a brother. He's one year older than me. I have a couple of other younger brothers as well. But my older brother was also in the health. He was, we have similar stories. He was overweight as well. We both kind of math, science oriented. He was going the pre-med route. And I was kind of in the same thing because I didn't really know what, I, I was only interested in fitness. And I guess the natural thing was like pre-med. Uh, and I worked for one of my, really good friends. His dad's an internist. Uh, I worked for him for a summer. I shadowed a bunch of surgeons. Basically everyone talked me out of going to medical school. They said, look, you don't want to work for insurance companies. And we had a family friend who was a dentist. He seemed to like enjoy the profession. Uh, and so I was like, you know, that's a good aside, like good hours help people. Let's, let's do that. Uh, Now I have a different perception on choosing careers. Now I've gone through that, like choosing a career based on doing it. You you only have to do it a little bit of time. Like that's not the way I would choose a career. Now I would choose something like, hey, I really want to do a lot. I want to spend a lot of time in this area, not, oh, I only have to work 30, 40 hours a week. Uh, So, but that's what led me into the dental field. And that's not like all regret. There's a a lot of positives that have come out of that. Uh, But that's what was the initial lead into dentistry.
1: And then, you know, so when you, you finish school and you go into practice at a dentist, um, you know, was the sort of health aspect of it immediately part of your practice? Because, frankly, most dentists don't pay attention to health. You know, they pay attention to how your teeth look and, yeah. uh, you know, the, the health of the teeth themselves, but they don't connect it to the, the health of the rest of the body.
2: Mm-hmm. So, so I have, I've had a very untraditional route post dental school. When, when I was in dental school, I realized what I was kind of just telling you, like, do I really want to drill and fill teeth 40 hours a week for the next 40 years if I'm not really super passionate about it? And so kind of had a little quarter life crisis in dental school, but there was an area of dentistry that really pulled on me, which was only like touched on in dental school. And it was obstructive sleep apnea. And it was shocking to me. We didn't really talk about it much in dental school, but after I graduated, I did a ton of continuing education in this area. And so when I graduated the, that fall, I started a practice where all I did was it's called dental sleep medicine, where I treat obstructive sleep apnea uh, and sleep disordered breathing. That was one area of dentistry. So I did that. And then on the side are also I I've done pediatric dentistry since I graduated. So those have been the two areas of dentistry I've focused on the most, most treating kids with general dentistry, and treating obstructive sleep apnea with adults. Uh, and the obstructive sleep apnea, you know, really grabbed me because it is directly related with what we're talking about, metabolic dysfunction, overweight, obesity, and dentists have a, I would say, a unique kind of offer for patients that, you know, we could go through, We can, we can go down that route, definitely not right for everyone, but it's a good option for a lot of people with sleep apnea. So that's the areas of dentistry I've spent the most time in the sleep realm and the pediatric dentistry. And with the kids, I do do my best to, you know, hey, drinking all the sugar, eating all the sugar, all the carbs. It's not the best, but it's really hard unless you get real buy-in from parents. And the, the pediatric dentistry I do is I work for this company called Smile America Partners. And they basically ship me around rural Missouri where there's no dentist and a lot of just Medicaid And so I'm really seeing an under kind of lower socioeconomic underserved population that it's hard to get across the diet aspect uh, for a number of reasons. So, you know, we do the best we can. But yeah, diet is like the neglected part of, you know, I would say dentistry, but maybe just health in general. (laughs) Wow.
0: So I'm I want (laughs) to. I want to drill down into. Uh, I was. I was. When I do my research on a on a, a guest, I try to find everything I can about you before I have you on, so I can ask very uncomfortable questions. Of course, um, you have in your the the free book that you sent out, which Meat Health Masterclass. No, that's not it. What's the name of the the book that you sent? It's
2: good. I've I've written yeah a, a number of like free ebooks people can download there's health dangers of a plant-based diet which is a click-baity title. title but it's one. Just, yeah <laughs> that's
0: the one um and you pro- I- i'm guessing you you use this metaphor elsewhere but you have the metaphor if humanities if humanity a- as a species had started at mm. midnight today we've only been eating i'm not sure i don't remember exactly what it yeah. was For the last, I can't remember what you said, two minutes or something like that. Sure. Um, We've got a very loyal audience, but it's also a growing audience. So there's going to be people who are going to hear this for the first time. And Mm -hmm. I would, I'd love for you to just kind of expand on, on that particular metaphor that I see you use a lot.
2: Sure. And I'll even, I'll, I'll change it a little bit because I've used it in the past and I've kind of refined it to help understanding a little bit. One is, so I'm fascinated by archaeology, anthropology, and especially dental archaeology, anthropology, because teeth are like the ideal fossils. So with that said, if we took Homo sapien, modern human, and this is according to archaeology, oldest Homo sapiens are roughly 300,000 years old. If we put all of Homo sapien on on a calendar year, so the dawn of Homo sapien, January 1st, Today is December 31st, You know the end of the new year starting, so all 300,000 years. Farming took place two weeks ago. So for 50 weeks, there was no farming. There was no agriculture. And what the Industrial is, Revolution basically... What's yeah. that
0: date roughly?
2: Uh, 10,000 years ago. It was the agricultural revolution. So on that timescale, it would be roughly two weeks on a calendar year. The last two weeks is agriculture. Industrial revolution basically happened today, which means for 50 years of homo sapien existence, we didn't have agriculture and we didn't have these industrial processed foods like which make up most of the diet today and so i think if people just do that thought experiment and be like okay well what would i've eaten for those 50 weeks especially if you take into the consideration like where were we geographically like like in africa savannah like you can only really come to one conclusion and it's a similar conclusion that a lot of you know study on early homo sapiens uh come to like we had to have eaten a very heavy meat-based diet
1: yeah. And, you know, expanding on that a little bit, you know, when you then look at processed food and that basically is like the last, you know, couple of seconds of the year <laughs> that you're talking about. You right. know, it gets introduced just as the ball is starting to drop, uh, so to speak. Um, and, and again, the evidence is, is that, you know, during that last two weeks that we had farming and then during those last few seconds that we had processed food, our health has clearly worsened. Um, and now we're really seeing the effect of that today where you know for the first time in recorded history lifespan uh is actually decreasing uh you know so um it's a it's a major concern so what have well, you if, w- w-
0: what what have you learned from the from the fossilized teeth of our ancient ancestors. What What's that fossil record show? And maybe sure, you may need of, to explain what it
2: means, too. Sure. Lots of great work by all kinds of archaeologists. notable one, Richard Klein, Stanford, very kind of renowned archaeologist. Uh, he's basically quoted as saying, early hom- Homo sapiens skulls, never seen one with malocclusion, basically never saw crooked teeth. And really, they highlight and other research highlights this fact that at the dawn of the agricultural revolution, which was two weeks ago on that example, is when we see a dramatic rise in caries, cavities in the teeth, caries, abscesses, and we see a slight increase in perhaps some malocclusion, but malocclusion takes off with the industrial revolution, and so malocclusion no is crooked teeth crooked teeth so basically if you have kids these days we almost expect all kids to have braces and most people assume that's just hereditary when that is contrary to what we find in the archaeological record it is very much environmental and there's probably some epigenetic components to it which i would assume is probably true uh but yeah it's not like the default human blueprint, genetic blueprint, we should not be, you know, all 32 teeth should fit in. Like we shouldn't need to be getting our wisdom teeth taken out. Our teeth should be coming in straight. Uh, And if we're eating an appropriate diet, we should not be getting cavities. So I think that is pretty clear in the archaeological record.
0: Are there any other animal species that have crooked teeth?
2: (laughs) Just the ones we domesticate. Domesticated dogs uh, will get some, they'll get some, and they'll also interestingly get uh, obstructive sleep apnea as well. So yeah, no, really like other animals that they don't have like the oral problems that we do as humans, which is mostly diet induced. That's just,
0: yeah, that's
1: pretty amazing. I've never really thought about, but do wild animals get cavities at all? I mean, is that described in wild animals?
2: Very rarely. So it's, it's a rare phenomenon. And so, yeah, it, it is very interesting. You think about that, like. You know, wild animals—they don't get obese, they, they don't get cavities, they don't get malocclusion. Like, what is going on here? But, uh, but the ones we do domesticate, the ones we put in zoos and feed uh, other—you know—more modern, man-made foods—they do <laughs> get these problems. You know, they get heart disease. The the gorillas get atherosclerosis. Uh, so, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah so
0: the, the first the first uh, season of this show was basically me asking Dr. Ovadia about things that he said in his book and asking him to kind of reveal the dirty dark secrets of the medical establishment as he has seen it from the inside. Um, and he said, "I'm forgive me if I get your quotes wrong here, Phil, but the gist of it was in medical school, they told him that half of what they're what he's taught in medical school is wrong. They just don't know which half and -hmm. we'll figure it out. Um, and here he is a couple of decades past medical school and has learned a lot of the stuff that was wrong so with that as as kind of the, the the intro is there the same kind of situation in dental school have you stumbled into in school they told me this and i've since found out that was completely wrong and if so if you don't mind what is that
2: yeah i i i think so And not to like put blame on the dental industry or whatnot, I think they do the best they can because a lot of these problems are, in the scheme of things, new. So we introduced these new foods. We start getting malocclusion. And now we need orthodontists. Like, orthodontia is a few, you know, 100 years old, a little bit older than 100 years old. It's like, so in the realm of fields that's a pretty small field uh like it hasn't been it hasn't existed for a long time but we create these new problems and we need to create solutions to them and in dentistry yes it's it's been an you know ongoing learning process uh like what has come to light i'll say more recently is like you know maybe these amalgam fillings with mercury in them aren't so good maybe root canals could potentially not be the best solution uh but i I always go back and also play devil's advocate slash defender of the dental industry uh, in that, for example, if someone gets a cavity, well, we need to do something. (laughs) So we have to do something and it's not going to be as good as your original tooth. So like, that's the default baseline. So we're automatically going to have like cost and benefits. You can do nothing and it's going to likely get worse. So we have to do something. And so at the time, you know, amalgam was the best dental material. uh, And we've had other things like, for example, if you don't do nothing, you get, you need a root canal. Okay. There's pros and cons to that. But then if you want, one of the solutions is take the tooth out, but then there's pros and cons to that especially if you want to replace it with a dental implant which you know now you're putting metal into the bone pros and cons to that so a lot of this is like <laughs> it's kind of like polypharmacy like you have a problem and then you try and figure fix, find a solution but that solution has problems so maybe you got to find another solution uh what? and yeah i i think it's a constant learning process
0: there there's going to be a very small subset of the of the audience that cares about the answer to this question and i'm in this small subset <laughs> Uh, what's the what's the metal that's used in an implant?
2: There's all kinds of metals. They'll use titanium. They'll use ceramics. And so, uh, yeah, there's various kinds of metals they'll use. A lot of them are titanium today. But people who are more they're called biologic dentists who try the biologic dentists are kind of the parallel of functional medicine practitioners. They try and do the holistic solutions. They'll use ceramics because metals uh, cause issues.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, maybe we can uh get into the sort of controversial uh area there about the uh, amalgam fillings and uh you know I don't know how much people in the audience may or may not be aware of this issue. Um they were what wi- they are widely used. I think they're still the most common filling done here in the US. They've been banned in many countries um you know outside the US and there's a lot of controversy about the long-term impact of having these mercury basically uh in your mouth or uh you know if you're talking about kids you know and young adults getting fillings they might be in there for 60 70 years uh so what's your take on that
2: the, so i will say the tide has turned and at least for example you know the company i'm working for we don't we don't use any amalgam i think a lot of practices have stopped using amalgam uh, Now there are So amalgam, like you said, has the mercury, and a common question people have is like, oh, I have amalgams, should I get them taken out? But it's really important to recognize that the dentist taking those out, (laughs) I don't want to say they should be like a biologic dentist, but you can cause more harm taking that out than just leaving it in because of an acute mercury exposure. So it needs to be done properly. They need to use something known as a rubber dam. They need to have proper uh, suction evacuation so you're not inhaling mercury vapors. Mm. Uh, ideally, you don't get cavities, but if you do, a lot of people are, have moved away from amalgam fillings and have used composites. Composites have their own problems. They leak more, they have BPA. Uh, and so, it, I, you know, once again, it's those pros and cons that we have to weigh you know most people go for composite fillings today when they which are white colored so there's aesthetic reasons for that as well but but yeah in general you don't want to have fillings. if you do you get you get a you know you get a amalgam i would say a lot of people depending on the situation maybe leave them in but if you're going to take them out get them taken out by the right person uh who's very careful does it in the right way uh, but then there's also, you just got to be conscientious of the other dental materials that you're putting for and stuff that's going to be embedded in your mouth for uh, many, many years. Uh, so you, you just got to be cognizant of the pros and cons. And I think a lot of the cons, we still don't know, kind of like what we were talking about. There's 50% of these dental materials we'll learn in 50 years from now. That's like, oh, we shouldn't have been using that composite material. We should have been using X, Y, Z.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> along those lines, but... <laughs> what should we be doing to prevent ourselves from getting cavities in the first place and needing these fillings?
2: So cavities are almost entirely caused by a diet and specifically carbohydrates and sugar and sugar drinks play an especially large role in decay. And so I, I like to give an example of like, what's the worst thing you can do? So people can kind of like backtrack to be like, okay, that is the worst thing. So I can understand this in a continuum. And like the worst thing someone could do for their teeth as far, or I should say the best way to get cavities is to drink sugar drinks. And the reason being is there's a study that shows 93% of sh- drinks that you go buy at a store, whether it's sugar or not. 93% of store-bought drinks are acidic already. They have things like citric acid, malic acid phosphoric acid they have these acids that are going to lower the ph of the oral environment so that's number one that number one
0: what that means in in english is lowering the ph acid.
2: of the oral environment explain sure that the p the your mouth will get more acidic and acidic will acid will erode the teeth uh and the acid is what will actually cause decay so, you don't, acid, so it ain't, you don't it want. Ain't
0: actually, the sugar, at least the sugar alone, it's the acid that's softening the enamel, I assume, and and creating an environment much more conducive to the stuff that eats away at your teeth. Am I in yes. the right neighborhood
2: there? Right. So, the acid in itself, let's say someone who's bulimic, for example, they will. Basically, the acid from the stomach will come out into the teeth that will cause erosion. And it'll lead away at the enamel and it will make the teeth more prone to decay. But the cavities that we are most familiar with is a byproduct of sugar, which was like the next ingredient where bacteria, certain bacteria in the mouth will ferment the sugar. And that process creates acid, a localized attack of acid. And that's what will eat through the enamel, through the dentin, cause the cavities as most people know them.
1: And uh, talk about the role of uh, protein in you know uh, teeth in the health of your teeth and in cavity formation as
2: well. Sure, I mean, well, protein kind of I like to think of this in two ways. One is there is the defense, and well, so, so there's like like if you think of the like a battle going on, you got you got the acid attack from the bacteria, but we also have defense mechanisms. Notably, saliva plays a huge role in defense mechanism by providing minerals like calcium and phosphate, as well as proteins and enzymes that are going to combat the other side. And so there's kind of this this constant battle going on, which when we have a proper diet, like the protective mechanism is strong enough that we're we're not going to get decay. So protein plays a crucial role in uh, providing the strength of teeth as well as the defense and I'm trying to, you know, let's say this in layman's terms, but also fats play a very important role. Vitamin A, vitamin K2, vitamin D play very important roles in the strengthening of the tooth structure. Basically, the immune system—that's the defense of the tooth structure. Uh, so, we from the defensive side, nutrition plays a very important role. And from like the the side waging war, the carbs and sugar, uh, we need this defensive side to kind of ward that that attack off. Is
0: there is there a is there any activity, any behavior that has as powerful an effect on your dental health as what you eat?
2: Mm, I would say no. <laughs> uh oral hygiene is kind of a good band-aid for a bad diet for oral health. So someone's eating a bad diet and they are you know, they're flossing every day, they're brushing twice a day, they're using the special ingredients in toothpaste to help remineralize the teeth, you can eat a bad diet and still not suffer poor oral health, as long as you're really on top of it. And kind of depends on how bad the diet is. This is kind of like the example of, you know, you're working out like two hours a day really hard. Uh, and so even though you're eating a junk diet, you're getting away with it for a while. Uh, so I would, I would equate it to that. But what you eat is the most important. And if we kind of go back to the example, like the worst thing you can do, you got these drinks that are already acidic. They have sugar. Now sugar, like we talked about, creates the acid attack. And then you're not chewing. So chewing stimulates saliva. And saliva has those defense uh, properties, right? And most of standard American diet today is like soft mush. People like hardly, they don't chew at all basically. And so that's just... a absolute recipe for disaster. And then the last worst thing about those uh, sugar drinks is what's kind of unique about decay is, are this like this pH drop, like this acidic environment, you get an attack. Like for example, you drank a sip of Red Bull, you get in a 22 minute acid attack on your teeth. The body will then fight that acid off, rebalance, you know, re get to a neutral pH. But what's particularly damaging about drinks is people tend to just sip on these things all throughout the day. So, the body can never recover. It's always in the low pH acidic state. And so, I like to give you an example of this is the worst thing you can do. So, what, what the reverse of that would be like how you prevent decay. Like, you eat infrequently, you don't eat a lot of carbs, sugar, you eat something that causes you to chew and stimulate saliva. Uh, and so, like, all these are kind of like clues like, man, we should be eating a lot more meat <laughs> things that you have uh, to chew. Yes, yeah, exactly. Oh my
0: goodness.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. You know, um, there has been for a long time, you know, the connection between oral health and heart health has been actually well known. And it's been very well documented that people that have worse oral health end up with heart problems. And, you know, that was traditionally, the the prevailing theory around that is that, you know, bacteria from your mouth, you know, end up into your bloodstream and those can then damage the blood vessels and lead to heart uh, disease. I believe, um, and I think we have you know a fair amount of evidence to support this, that it really is just that they're the same root cause problem. you know the poor metabolic health ends up getting reflected in your oral um, microbiome and in your oral health. and of course you know poor metabolic health is is the primary root cause of heart disease as well uh, but I'd love to hear your thinking uh, on that.
2: I agree 100% with what you said, like periodontal disease is classically associated with heart disease, as well as neurological Alzheimer's issues. And I think some people try and stretch that and say periodontal disease is causing heart disease and neurological conditions when, you know, I don't think it's causative. I think it's correlative, meaning these things have the same underlying root cause. It's a poor diet that causes damage to the mouth that is causing the same kind of metabolic damage that's impairing the heart as well as the brain. Uh, So I do think that is the root cause here for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's very uh, interesting to see that connection. And, you know, uh, one of the earliest pioneers, you know, in the sort of metabolic health space uh, was of course the dentist, uh, Weston A. Price. And, you know, his research uh, really you know, his research, which was from the 1920s, um, you know, set the groundwork for our understanding of metabolic health. And, you know, he saw it in the oral health as he was going around the world, studying these, you know, ancestral populations and seeing that once westernized food got introduced to them, they develop these oral health problems and develop the metabolic health problems that go along with it.
2: Yeah, I, I think he's some of the most fascinating research because it simply can't be replicated. Like you said, in the early 1900s, was this unique time where all of a sudden we had this invention of airplanes, we had the camera, and we had the transition of these industrialized foods into these typical indig- indigenous diets. And so he was able to travel the world, five continents, you know, countless different <coughs> tribes. And compare with photography indigenous diets were, were like they'd be in the same country, for example, like next door neighbors where they were eating their indigenous diets, but down the street, there there was a street that connected them to uh the modern processed foods, which were in, at his in his time, notably lots of sugar and flowers. And he could just see like right then and there, like th- this is like perfect epidemiological research. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that were eating the flowers and the sugar, uh, you know, they got malocclusion they got decay and his seminal book nutrition and physical degeneration was like the oral cavity degeneration is directly associated to the physical degeneration that he saw in these people
0: say that again uh, uh, the because i I was thinking as you were talking so what's the actual mechanism of screwed up teeth uh crooked teeth cavities What's what's really going on? And I think that's what you were uh, – you, you gave evidence that the connection is there. But what's going on? Why is it that that eating
2: screwy stuff makes our teeth crooked? So Weston Price's hypothesis, which I would probably add a little bit to it because of – he I, his book is like 500-plus pages uh, dense. And the main conclusion is – these modern processed foods, notably sugar and flours, displaced highly nutritious foods, meats, mostly meats, animal-based foods, but also various uh, cultures had other things. They had dairy, they had, some had rye, uh, but basically these nutrient-poor foods displaced the healthy foods. And so basically uh, nutritional deficiencies were leading to decay, degeneration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. you know, what's fascinating in his book, all 500 pages, this is the early you know, 20th century. He does not once mention overweight or obesity. And yeah. th- to me, that was striking people that are eating all this sugar and all this flour. And he takes all these meticulous notes on these people, the their mouths, their physical structure. Like, wouldn't you mention like, oh, these people eating this are, they have more body fat but not once in the entire book does he mention that. And I think, you know, one thing that I've I made a video that Dr. Westman Price left out, which I don't think he left out intentionally, is just it wasn't there yet where these modern processed vegetable oils, those really didn't come into existence. Like Crisco was 1911, and it wasn't until really the mid-20th century where these vegetable oils started to take off, which I think play a prominent role in obesity. And so I think Dr. Westman Price noted the deficiency of vitamins, minerals, nutrition. Whereas today we I think we still have that to a large degree, but we also have this problem of abundance, this problem of excess consumption. And so we I think we have a double whammy problem today, whereas perhaps in the early 20th century is more like deficiencies. And today it's more deficiencies plus excess.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. um and I and I want to throw a question to both of you as as the resident layman here um i've i've been hearing about the evils of grains uh with with dr ovadia and and really for years before that and had had observed in my own body if i don't eat grains my digestion is better that's just kind of my personal experience and so when i heard grains vilified it made sense to me <laughs> however um, this doesn't make sense and I want to hear you guys I, I just I'd like to hear some some discussion about this. M- my oldest daughter lives in Switzerland. Um, I never thought she was overweight, but she moved to Switzerland and has gotten thin. I mean she mm. looks she looks fabulous. Um, she's been there 12 years I guess. Um, her weekly diet, her husband makes I think he makes 7 loaves of bread every Saturday <laughs> and they eat this homemade bread at least one at least one meal a day is bread and cheese and apparently that's a Swiss thing I don't know she moved to Switzerland from Japan where she had run a marathon e- eating a Japanese diet And had lost weight. And I thought she looked good, but my gosh, the weight fell off when she went to Switzerland. The diet she eats, compared to what I thought problems were, it looks like she should be fat and uh, developing diabetes and have all kinds of inflammation. Not so. My speculation is... Whatever this bread is that they're eating, whatever the flour they're making it out of, it's got to be different than what what's happening over here. Could you guys talk about that? I'm, it's 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 a puzzle to me.
2: Sure, I think there's some. Um, for first of all, like I like to look at historical precedent, <laughs> uh, and there's been many. I'll say carb based heavy starch eating societies that have no issues with diabetes, Chinese, uh, whatever, you know, eat tons of rice, Chinese rice farmers. Uh, there's groups where they ate like reported like 90% of their calories from like sweet potatoes, uh, no obesity. Uh, and so I do think, I think This kind of gets to the vegetable oils, I think, is the primary driver of obesity. But I do think sugars absolutely play a role. To your point, I do think there's also differences in American wheat and genetically modified. Are we doing something weird to it that is really causing problems? Uh, Because even the gluten is different uh, chemically. And so I do think that is a potential thing like most people experience like you hear the stories they experience the opposite of your daughter they're fit yeah. wherever they are they move to the united states and you you just get fat that's what happens when you move here <laughs> uh so i do think like so this is kind of almost brings everything full circle we were talking about it may not be the healthiest diet like you can be fit like not overweight and fat but not be metabolically healthy so i would say i would i would say that as a precursor uh, but at the same time if she is eating let's say just, uh, I'll say more or less healthier carbs. And there's a, we could talk a lot about that uh, because yeah, it, it, what what is packaged along with that carbohydrate, right? Yeah. Versus, and, and she's also getting a lot of good nutrition, like a lot of healthy meats. You said cheese, dairy. So maybe she's getting fine on the nutrition well, side. Switzerland, yeah. they're pretty
0: strict yeah. about what, about, what the government will allow to be grown and sold. So I think everything they eat is probably grown within just a few miles of their house.
1: Yeah, and I think so, this really comes back to the food processing issue and, and you know, what what we uh, call bread here and what they, you know, call bread, you know, that, uh, that her husband has made you know, in his home, using local ingredients are are two completely different foods. You know, and they just happen to share a name. But I think yeah. it's really comes down to the food processing, and and you know, um, yeah, it may not necessarily be the carbohydrate them itself, the wheat itself. Um, but you know, you in, in the American diet, you can't separate um, you know yeah. basically processed food from from carbohydrates and sugar. They're always together. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, though, so I think, I, I think there is, you know, I, I don't think that all carbohydrates are necessarily, you know, bad. Um, it's just that, you know, we have to be practical here in the U S um, it's hard to get the clean carbohydrates. And the other caveat there is if you are already metabolically unhealthy, then all carbohydrates are bad because your body can no longer process carbohydrates. That's you know, one of the sort of mechanistic problems that occurs, uh, you know, with poor metabolic health. So again, it's a different situation if you are already metabolically unhealthy. Um, But if you are metabolically healthy, I think we have many examples of, you know, yeah, you can tolerate carbohydrates. um, You just can't tolerate processed food. Processed food ultimately um, is the, the thing that carries through all of this and you know you can argue about which component of the processed food it might be, but in the end it doesn't matter. It's the processed food uh, that is really causing you know the majority of the uh, chronic diseases uh, in this country and and worldwide as that processed food is spread worldwide.
0: Phil, would you would you expand a little bit on something you said if you're if you're metabolically unhealthy, you can no longer tolerate carbohydrates. Yeah, What's the this, mechanism of that? Is that the insulin sensitivity or insensitivity it, as it
1: exactly, it has to do with your insulin sensitivity, um, but that's basically, you know, what type two diabetes is. Um, you know, you have become carbohydrate intolerant. And so the solution to that problem is stop eating carbohydrates in all their forms.
0: Um, yeah and, well, gi- and give your insulin receptors a chance to recover and reset. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. All right, Kevin, there's there's this uh, unique aspect of of Kevin' stock, the public persona, um, <laughs> that you're not you're definitely not the first of this type, but you're still in a very, very small, Uh, Cadre of individuals. Apparently, you only eat meat. Yes,
2: pretty much. How long has Uh, that been
0: going on? And what were the transformations that you experienced personally as a result of moving to a meat-only
2: diet? mm -hmm. So, for me, what we were kind of talking about, I figured out this fitness, but I didn't feel great. Especially, I was working on many projects. Uh, and I really wanted the mental performance to be able to like not have to just live on coffee and like I just want to be able to go like all day. I got I got this big to-do list, but I'm I'm relying on coffee. I'm tired. I'm, you know, etc. And to make kind of make a long story short, that this was 2016. I'd done a ketogenic diet before. I was like, okay, maybe I just really need to really go all in on keto. Right. Uh And so I did it for the mental performance, you know, running in on ketosis, running on fat, uh, and it it really didn't do it for me, but I had been studying nutrition for a long time. One of the researchers, Dr. Bruce Ames, he talked about these plant phytotoxins, you know, I came across, um, I think Dr. Stephen Gundry's book came out around that time. And so I'm, I'm reading about lectins, oxalates, various kinds of polyphenols, and I'm like, if I look at my diet, it was lots of vegetables and like lean meats. <laughs> so if it's not the lean meats, uh, maybe I'll, let's try getting rid of these vegetables. And as I got rid of, rid of them, I knew I couldn't just live on chicken breast. So I started eating red meat really in any significant quantity for the first time. And this is circa 2017, mid 2017. Uh, and... I mean, it was kind of like the pulling of these two levers just turned my brain on. I had not felt like so alive and so good. And so I started, I had been, like we were talking about, I've been talking about health and fitness up to that point for probably a decade. And so this small following of people, I'm like, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. Here's research, et cetera. And basically just started writing about it. More people started doing it. And I just feel my best. Uh, this way, <laughs> quite as simply as that. And it's been going, what is it now? Five, over five years. So um, still alive, still still kicking. <laughs> still uh, not dead.
1: <laughs> still not dead. Scurvy yet.
2: Still haven't gotten scurvy. I've done different kinds of quote unquote carnivore diets during this time. Let's, like, whoa, 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 I did... stop.
0: stop just a minute. I think that's a huge point. Th- what Phil just said about scurvy. Mm-hmm. One or both of you guys expand on that because there's people, especially, uh, folks who are on, closer to the end of life than the beginning, like me, who've heard this scurvy thing forever.
2: So sure. Uh, uh, first of all, like meat, I eat fresh meat has vitamin C in it. And I think there's a lot of, veracity to the glucose scorbate antagonism theory the gaa theory where basically glucose and vitamin c look very similar molecularly and so they can compete for uptake and if you're not eating tons of sugar you don't have high blood sugar you're not insulin resistant uh i i believe probably the the needs for dietary vitamin c probably dropped quite significantly and this is not just for vitamin c this is for most of our vitamins and minerals they are context dependent on the rest of the diet, uh, and lifestyle and, and such. So, so yeah, I think the the requirement for actual total vitamin C is probably less in someone eating just meat and the meat has vitamin C in it. Uh, especially if you're eating organs, uh, where there's tends to be, you know, a fine quantity of vitamin C.
1: Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that, you know, and, and it turns out historically this was known. I mean, the uh the early treatment for for scurvy was actually to eat fresh meat. Um, you know, and then mm-hmm. what happened was yeah, on these, you know, on these long sea journeys when we started crossing the oceans, um, and they only had preserved meat. Um,
0: you know, the sailors oh, which doesn't have the vitamin content no of longer fresh
1: has meat. The vitamins in it. Exactly. And then, you know, uh. this, this is how this kind of misunderstanding coming into play. And then Um, when they were establishing, you know, the recommended daily allowance of all these uh, vitamins. And this is now 1950s, 1960s, when we were able to measure, you know, and all of this. And quite frankly, it appears that, you know, they just mismeasured, you know, the amount of vitamin C in meat. Uh, It's not clear if maybe they were using preserved meat or it wasn't fresh meat. And just the, the common thinking became that there was no vitamin C in meat, uh, in muscle meat. Uh, but it turns out there is vitamin C in muscle meat. Um, and as Kevin said, you know, if you're not eating a lot of sugar and carbohydrate, you probably don't need a whole lot of vitamin C to uh, sustain yourself. So, um, you know, uh, we now have many long-term carnivores, uh, you know, people who have been doing it for decades, Uh, who, you know, haven't gotten scurvy yet and never will because um, you can get enough vitamin C from meat.
0: Could I follow up uh, with the organ meat statement? Um, Because of my relationship with Dr. Ovedia, I've gotten a lot more uh, serious about eating a better diet. By the way, I am three pounds above 200 pounds for the first time and i don't know how long Checked just this morning i'm like woohoo i haven't seen the backside i haven't seen the backside of 200 in a long long time so i'm excited about that um but one thing that i one hump i have been completely unable to get over is organ meat um and i think what it really is is just the e factor you know Do you guys have a recommendation for somebody like me, who has the will, but maybe (laughs) maybe not the courage (laughs) to get there? How do you start eating organ meats? What do you
2: do? That's funny. Well, I think organ meats are great because a lot of them are nutrition powerhouses, like beef liver, notorious nutrition uh, powerhouse. But also other organs, you know, heart, spleen, thymus. They they have different Quantities of nutrients. I my point of view is that if you're eating a like a a relatively good diet, you don't need to force these foods. Like I don't, I don't think you need to. But if it is just something where it's like more of a mental thing, which I understand, for example, like I had beef tongue the other day. And when you when you get the beef tongue out, like I get I get my my beef from a from a farmer, I buy the whole cow. So I, I eat the whole thing. So this tongue, you look at it, it is visually, I'll just say intimidating. But if I were to you know, pull off a few of those outer layers, cook it up and serve it to you and not tell you that it was beef tongue, you would probably enjoy it. It tastes really good. So I do think there is this, uh, this mental hurdle. Like if you eat a heart, like, you know, it kind of looks like a heart and there's vessels and, (laughs) and it it could be intimidating, but I, I, I do think a lot of it is probably psychological. Some people just don't have a, like, don't like it. Like, livers notably people just don't like it and i think if someone's eating a good diet like there's plenty plenty of examples of people not eating these organs that are just thriving on a carnivore diet uh i personally i wouldn't say i love them more than like a steak but i also don't mind them and so i prefer i just eat the whole animal i don't like to waste food uh, so that's kind of my thoughts around it
1: Yeah, I I would agree. I don't think they're necessarily essential Um, for me, uh, probably. You guys are going
0: to get kicked out of the club for saying that, you know. Well,
1: you know, there's there's two. This is one of the battles that goes on in the carnivore community. But um, uh, the best way I find to incorporate them is, you know, I I get blends of ground beef that have the organs in it. And uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I find that to be tolerable beef heart is probably, you know, one of the organs that I'll eat straight up. I, I actually enjoy that. Um, somewhat ironic, I guess, being a heart surgeon,
0: <laughs> it's but kind of, it's kind <laughs> of crazy. But,
1: yeah. A little bit Hannibal Lecter maybe, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, you know, so, um, I, 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 you know, largely agree with what Kevin was saying that, you know, they're not essential, but you can always find ways to get them into the diet. Um, I'm, I'm sure your, uh, your Swiss daughter probably has some you know, good, uh, traditional Oregon recipes by now
0: that she's been living there. For- oh, that's a good idea. I, I should ask her about that.
2: Yeah. Yep. I do think people that are not eating an ideal diet incorporating organs is probably a good idea. You know, oh, yeah, a lot yeah. of nutrition, a lot. So less yeah, important involved. if you're eating a good diet, more important yeah. if you're eating a bad diet. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay.
0: Um, one more question. I, and, and, and this actually applies to both of y'all. Um, the Um I want, I want to hear you talk about the details of a carnivore diet. And and here's some of the things I've struggled with. And by struggle, I I just, I can't seem to make it work for myself. Um, I love beef. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love beef, beef. It's wonderful. I love beef. Um, but apparently um i i need to expand a little bit so chicken pork lamb i love lamb but i just can't afford to eat eat lamb all the time um how do you guys make a carnivore diet work from an actual what you eat at a particular meal you know i my wife will not eat beef Every meal. It's just, she ain't going to do it. Um, so I'm trying to, you know, throw some fish and maybe some chicken. And what, how do you make it work?
2: I think there's a couple parts to this question. Cause one is like, how do you make it work in society and life with the family? And then the other part is like, how do I make it work as just like an individual? For me, as like an individual, I can eat beef and eggs. I mean, I just, I can eat just beef all the time, every meal. I don't, it doesn't get old to me. It tastes great. I feel great. Uh, if I want some variety, I'll throw in some eggs. If I, you know, this year was the first time I've actually experimented with some dairy and I've seemed to tolerate it just fine. So maybe that's uh, add a little spice to life. You know, I have some dairy. Uh, but for me personally, I don't really need variety. I do think a lot of that variety comes from more of like a cultural thing. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're around people, you have a family. For example, my girlfriend, she's not going to eat only meat either. Uh, so we do like actually prepare like separate meals. And I know that's not convenient for everyone, but uh that's how how we deal with that. And I think it's worth saying that not everyone needs to be like hundred percent carnivore. Most people just need to start eating more meat and less junk. And like directionally, that's what they need to be doing. Uh now I do think some people probably should be pretty darn near carnivore to start healing their relationship with food, their addictions to healing their metabolic conditions. Uh, but again, that's not to say that those people necessarily need to be 100% carnivore. They can, there's, I found there tends to be two kinds of people. Those who are like the type A, I'll say personalities, I'm all in, all or nothing. Okay, that's great. You go 100% carnivore. And then there's the people that are like more type B. I need some leniency. I need to be able to have a couple of drinks with friends. I need to be able to have some chocolate after dinner. And so maybe they're 90% carnivore and they can find success there. Uh, th- to me, that's like, you're not like breaking the, the carnivore code or you're not, you know, it, it's a very viable option to find a solution that works for them.
0: What about you, Phil?
1: Yeah. You know, so, I mean, uh, I, first of all, I I totally agree with Kevin that I think for most people, you know, a hundred percent carnivore is not a necessity. Uh, I think mostly carnivore is, you know, a good starting point. Um, And I, you know, I find a lot of variety from just eating meat. Uh, You know, I do a lot of seafood. Um, you know, eggs, I think are, are, are an essential part of, uh, you know, uh, the diet. Um, I think eggs are kind of a superfood, you know, and they have, you know, very, uh, good nutrient profile. Um, so I, I incorporate a lot of eggs, a lot of seafood, uh, different types of meat, although, you know, I'm, I'm pretty beef heavy, I would say. Um, and, uh. You know, I, uh, the variety thing, again, is is a little bit of a, you know, it, it, again, if we go back to that evolutionary, you know, uh, you know, time scale, um, we didn't have a lot of variety in our diet for most of our existence. You know, we ate what was around us and what was accessible and and that wasn't very varied. Uh, so uh, this is sort of a newer Introduction. I think a lot of it is driven by the food industry, uh, by marketing. You know that that we need to have this sort of variety, and it's boring to eat the same thing all the time. Uh, for someone like myself who has a very busy life, um, you know, it's it's not boring to eat the thing the same thing all the time. It's easy to eat the same thing all the time. I don't have to think yep. about it. Yeah, you know, so I, it's it becomes a very uh, you know, it, it has made my life easier, you know, being a carnivore. Uh, I don't have to think about recipes. I'm not planning. Shopping becomes very easy. You know, uh, the, the rare times that I enter the supermarket, you know, it's just a quick lap around the outside. And, you know, like Kevin, I try and get things locally and from the farmers and, you know, keep my freezer stocked. And so it's just a matter of grabbing something out of the fridge or the freezer throwing it in a pan for a little bit and you're, you're good to go. Uh, So it, it, a lot of it is the mindset that you bring to this.
2: Yep. I agree. The biggest worry is like pulling the meat out of the freezer in time to thaw it in the refrigerator. That's that's about the extent of my stress around eating.
0: (laughs) I'll share with you guys a little trick that I, I have recently learned. Uh, My wife apparently needs the leaner meats far more than I do. And we've discovered Costco sells these uh, tilapia fillets that are individually flash frozen. And I can take a tilapia fillet out of the freezer, still in the plastic, and throw it in a sous vide at 120 degrees. And in an hour, I've got this perfectly cooked from frozen. I mean, with zero effort. Well, I got to take it out and throw it in. and you know i i i found that i really really like that um all right i have one comment before we close it up um i'm i've been reading i've just finished reading a book that talks about um the world to come from a geopolitical perspective and i was fascinated to learn that everywhere except america because of how we grow chickens hmm. Chickens are an incredibly energy-intensive type of meat that is wildly expensive both to produce and to buy because they do it the normal way, hmm. which apparently us Americans don't. The idea that chicken is essentially a, uh, an economy meat exists only in America. I thought that was fascinating. And I think Phil was the one who suggested that I when I complained about how dry chicken meat is to me, he said, pour some olive oil on it. I've tried that. It makes a huge difference. I love it.
1: Yeah, All right. chicken is Something else we have ruined here in the US, unfortunately.
0: Kevin, you have a rather extensive uh, list of things you've got your fingers into. What is your favorite way to interact with the public, specifically Dr. Ovedia's listeners?
2: You know, my favorite is it's kind of weird and old school is I write a newsletter every week and it goes out. It's called the Saturday 7. It goes out Saturday at 7 a.m. Uh, and I just try and put my best stuff in that. And because I feel like most people would probably be better off with less social media, Uh so I'm on all the social media platforms, but I I concentrate it into a newsletter. That's that's what I that's what I do.
0: Okay, tell me here while we're recording uh, how folks get that, but we'll also make sure that that information is in the show notes.
2: Sure, it's on, on my website. It's kevinstock.io. You'll see links there, but you can also get it. So I run meat.health is a website, and um, yeah, I think you can sign up there links to it and from social uh handles you my social handles kevin stock 12 just about everywhere so
0: all right very good well we will make sure all of that is uh in the show notes um i'm eager to read the uh the saturday seven that sounds fun <laughs> it's um, a great
1: thank you. great newsletter thank i you. look forward to it every saturday
0: <laughs> thank you very cool all right phil Thanks, man. I just love that I get to to meet and talk with these smart people who who are making a difference in the world. So I appreciate you getting Kevin on here. And Kevin, thanks, man.
2: Well, thank you for having me on. I enjoyed chatting. Yeah,
1: great having you, Kevin. And uh, look forward to more uh, future discussions.
2: Absolutely.
0: All right, for Kevin Stock and Dr. Philip Ovadia, I'm Jack Heald. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Uh, go to Dr. Ovedia's website at ifixhearts. Is it calm now, Phil? Yep. Yeah, we we now own ifixhearts.com. Um and there's a metabolic health quiz there. It just gives you a good way to, to kind of grade yourself um, on where you are in terms of metabolic health. And of course, you can uh, connect with Dr. Ovedia on Twitter at iFixHearts and uh, just about everywhere that matters at iFixHearts. And we'll talk to y'all next time.